We're so glad that y'all have joined us online for worship today, and we're positive that God has something specifically to speak just to you. We want you to know that you are always welcome here at First Baptist Azel, and that you can connect with us by going online to fbcazel.org forward slash connect. Now let's hop back into the sermon and hear what God has for us today. What a passage. Go ahead and stand with me as we read God's Word together. This is Ezekiel chapter 37, beginning in verse 1, or we're just going to look at verse 1 right now. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts through your Spirit to understand your words today from this passage. How perfectly it fits this time and this generation and even this week in this world as it did during the time of Ezekiel. Teach us today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Today's message is entitled, Dry Bones Rattling. Dry Bones Rattling. There were some big battles in the Bible, uh, and especially in the Old Testament. In fact, we see the bulk of those battles taking place in the Old Testament, uh, not to mention, though, Revelation, uh, when we see the greatest battle of all, Armageddon. But in the Old Testament, there were times where armies came together in tens of thousands hundreds of thousands, and in one or two occasions, maybe even more than that, we see, for example, in Second Chronicles chapter 14, uh, the Israelites had 380,000 soldiers there in the valley where they fought, and there are just a handful of valleys in Israel where all the, all the battles were fought over the centuries, because those particular valleys had large flat plains in the middle, and it was just good for fighting. You can't fight on the mountain. You can't fight on the side of a hill. You, you fight your armies in, in the valley, on the valley floor. And so uh, this army of Israel had 380,000, but they were way outnumbered by the enemy, uh, which the Bible tells us in Chronicles 14, if you have time sometime, go back and read that. The enemy, depending on the translation or how you translate it, or translate it may have had a million members in that army. A million on one army. That If they had a million, this would have been one point, nearly 1.4 million soldiers. So what happened when the battle was over and there are tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of bodies lying on the floor of the valley? Well, you can't transport that kind of, that many people. You can't take them all back and you don't have the ability to bury them. You don't have the equipment for that. And so much of the time, they were just left there on the valley floor. Now, the, the, the winning army might go through all of those bodies and remove any valuable piece of clothing, shoes or uh, weapons, a helmet or swords or anything like that, anything of value. As a part of their plunder, they would take that off the dead bodies and what was left, this, the, the dead men there, would be picked off by the wild animals of the day or the vultures of the day would pick their bones clean. And then their, their, the, what's left of the remains would just lay out in the valley floor under the hot sun. 
And over the weeks and months and years, the sun, by the way, in the summers in Israel are a lot like Texas in August. They're hot and dry, very arid. And so those bones within just a year or so would be completely dried out by the sun, baked by the sun, and bleached bright white. And so Ezekiel has this vision God gives him, and he takes him out and puts him smack dab in the middle of a valley where a massive battle has taken place. And all he sees all around him are piles and piles of dead bones. This picture doesn't really do it justice at all. There were many, many, many more than that there. And so that's what he's seen. And so I want us to look at this, uh, this scene in Ezekiel chapter 37, try to figure out why on earth would God give Ezekiel this vision, this unique vision, and what is it he's trying to say to you and I today in the 21st century in 2020? God first tells him to see the bones, and that's his first directive. He says, I want you to see the bones. Look in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 1. We're going to read the first three verses. It says this, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? It's an interesting question with an obvious answer. The answer is no. <laughs> the logical answer is no. If you see bones on the side of the road or wherever you might see bones, you know it's over. Once you're nothing but bone, you're, you're done. And so the obvious answer is, of course, no. For thousands of years, all the battles and the millions who have died, every one of them, when it came time to to, to the point that they have no clothing and no flesh and no muscles and they're just dry, bleached bones. It was always over for all of them. And so God asked this odd question. Is it too late? Can these bones live? Now, I didn't put it up there. The, the last sentence of this verse is, <clears throat> the last verse is the response of, Ezekiel, and Ezekiel answers God very carefully. And by the way, I think that's a good idea. <laughs> Always answer God very carefully. And Isaiah, uh, excuse me, Ezekiel said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. He wasn't ready to make a commitment. So he says, only you know. That's fair. You know, when Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida uh, opened in 1974, so it wasn't the original, well, the one in California was original, and then in 74, the one in Florida open. Now, there's a big difference between the two. I don't know if you know the difference. The difference is Walt Disney was alive when the one in Florida was built, but he had already passed away by the time before the opening of the one in Florida. <coughs> in 1974, on the big opening day, they had this big ceremony and celebration. Uh, a, a famous newscaster of the 1970s named Walter Cronkite you remember Walter? I'm Walter Cronkite. That's Walter. Um, and so he sat there right beside, that's a terrible impersonation of Walter Cronkite, sorry. But he sat there right beside, it's, uh, I understand, uh, Miss Disney, uh, his wife. 
And uh, he wanted to say just the right thing to Miss Disney. So he leaned over to her during the ceremony, the celebration, and all the amazing things that were going on and all the beauty of the park. He leaned over to her and he said, wouldn't it be great if Walt were here to see this day? Well, Miss Disney uh, wisely turned back and replied to him, if Walt had not first seen this, you wouldn't be seeing it today. Now, her reply is basically this, oh, Walt's seen it. (laughs) He saw it before there wasn't it. He had this vision in his mind of what Walt Disney World could be and what it could look like, and he he, he did his best to help design what was, what was in his mind, the dream that he had. He saw it for years before anybody else saw it. Well, in this passage, this is what we see. God knows the answer to the question. God has already seen what he's going to do to that valley of dry bones. And he's posing the question to Ezekiel. He says, I want you to think about it. What do you think could happen here? What is possible even in the midst of the impossible. So the first thing that we see is God says, see the bones. What are the bones? What do they represent? Death. Secondly, God says, I want you to speak to the bones. And I want you to speak to them hope. Hope. Ezekiel is actually told to prophesy in this passage, which is what prophets did. But here, in a strange directive, God says to Ezekiel, I want you to testify to these dead, dry bones. I want you to preach to the bones. When most people think of prophecy, they think about telling the future. And sometimes that is certainly the case. And often it's a call to immediate action. God wants to do something there and then. And so they function very much like a preacher today. It's very prophetic in in the sense that It's here and now. They didn't just foretell, they foretold. And so here we are in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 4, the very next verse. If you look there with me, as we continue with this conversation with God, then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord said to these bones. I will make my breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Wow, that's quite a, that's quite a prophecy, isn't it? In the time of Ezekiel, the Israelites were in an impossible situation. They had been conquered by a foreign nation. You probably know that part of the Bible well. Their cities had been burned to the ground. The temple had been destroyed. And the entire nation had been hauled off to Babylon. The northern ten tribes had been taken up to Assyria some years before and scattered in Assyria. And so there were only two tribes left, Judah and Benjamin. And they were hauled off in 587 to Babylon. And so all the nation had been enslaved and deported at this point. Just a few elderly that were there or those who couldn't make the trip and, or those who were able to escape them. Just a, a handful of people. And so it looked bad. 
it seemed that all was lost, that the Israelites were done. Not just having a bad day, they were done. They were dead. They were beyond repair. All you see is rubble in city after city after city. There's nothing left. They were like the dry bones in the valley. Here's one thing. Even though it seemed over and it was over, even though they were all deported and slaves elsewhere, God had a plan. And God's plan for Israel was for, his, for God's glory, not for Israel's glory. And God wasn't done with Israel. Even though they had brought this on themselves, he was not finished. He had a plan. In the midst of the impossible situation, that they found themselves, he reminded the people through the prophet Ezekiel that he is the God of the impossible. Each week I'm saddened and stunned to hear and read more reports about how our nation and our world has turned their back on God. How increasingly secular and pagan the world has become in our country is the same. The world is dead. The truth is, apart from Christ, the world has always been dead. It has no purpose and no hope. Apart from Christ. It's a sad place. I'd like to tell you otherwise, but the truth is, the world has always been dark and is dark to this day. What has changed is there's been... um, uh, a change in their attitude towards Christians and Christianity. Now, you and I know that persecution throughout the world for Christians is worse than it's ever been, and more people are dying now in the name of Christ than has ever died in our history. That goes mostly unnoticed in the news, but the numbers are startling every year. But more than that, it has become embarrassing in our culture if you're a Christian. That means you believe in a right and wrong. It means that you think that what others might be doing might be wrong. And so you're a hater and you're a terrible person. And we have been shamed into silence. No, make no mistake about it. The bones are lying on the valley floor. And there's a reason. You see, in this passage, in this prophecy, this vision that God gives Ezekiel, At this time, he's not talking about the rest of the world. He's not talking about other people. He's actually talking about God's people. And the problem wasn't with the Babylonians or the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Philistines. The problem was with God's people called by his name. And the prophecy and the hope is for God's people. It was over. Dry bones. But God is the God of the impossible. Number three, believe what God says about the bones. Believe what God says about the bones. That there will be life. When was the last time time you faced an impossible obstacle in your life? Not a difficult obstacle. We all have difficult obstacles, but an impossible obstacle. If you're watching from online... When was the last time you you faced something in your life that was impossible? It just wasn't going to happen. It was literally not possible. 
When was the last time you experienced the feeling of hopelessness? That's where the Israelites were. And that's where our world is. And it may be for many churches throughout our world, that's where they are right now, this feeling of sense of hopelessness. In Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 7, our very next verse in the passage, if you look there, 37, 7, Ezekiel says, So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and Tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Now, does history offer a more ridiculous picture than this? It is hopelessness incarnate. Dead bones. Now God does, or begins to do this work in recreating the bodies of those who were dead. By the way, dry bones are as dead as you can get. Ask a doctor and they'll tell you that uh, there are what we might call levels of death. The first level is, uh, of death is when the heart stops. <clears throat> now, sometimes the heart can be started again. Uh, you know, you rush to a, a hospital or somebody performs CPR. They put those paddles on you and shock you. I want you to know this is unique in all of history. It's only in this last century, the 20th century, in fact, in my lifetime or my parents' lifetime since they were born, that these technological developments were created to bring somebody back to life when they have heart death. doesn't always work, as you know, but sometimes it does. Their heart has stopped beating. And so until then, all the billions of people who have ever existed in our world throughout all of history, if somebody... In their, they or somebody in their life, a loved one, their heart stopped, it was over. They didn't go over there and start compressions or get paddles. There were no paddles. There was no CPR. They didn't know what to do, and they just died. But now, through the miracle of modern science, we can sometimes get a heart started again. That's heart death. <clears throat> and then there's brain death. You hear this term a lot, brain dead. If somebody is brain dead, their body may still be functioning, but if they're brain dead, it's really pretty much over. There's a little hope of recovery. But this passage is different. It's not just about heart death or brain death. He's not talking about somebody who is um, a little dead, but somebody who is long dead. They've been dead for a long time. The body is not just dead in this passage. The body is gone. And just the bones are left. These are not bones that are still moist, by the way, with decaying flesh on them. They are very dry. In fact, we get the term bone dry from this very passage. It's one thing to believe God for a miracle to heal the sick or to maybe raise a person who has just died and get their heart starting. But it's another thing to, for God to recreate somebody. You know, that happened in the Bible. Do you remember? It was Lazarus. You see, Jesus had resurrected some others from the dead before, Jairus' daughter and the widow's son, but they had only been dead for hours. The Jews believe, and I know I've told you this, but it's important, there was a point to where even the dead could not be resurrected again 
in Jewish belief, in Jewish tradition, that even if a miracle could occur, it had to occur within a certain period of time, and after that time it was too late. Can anybody tell me what the deadline is for Jews? It's three days. The Jews believed that the spirit hovered in and around the body for three days, and then after three days it departed. Do you know why they believed that? See, they, embalm, they did not embalm like we do. They had the funeral on the same day of the death because they didn't embalm. And the reason they likely believe that is because after three days, by the fourth day, the body and the cells in the body are breaking down. It's a, a corpse. It's, it's, without embalming, it's a bad... They can smell it. They can see it. And so you're talking about a complete breakdown on the cellular level with... Lazarus. And I always say this, at the resurrection of Lazarus, I don't technically call it resurrection, I call it recreation. Because all of his cells had to be recreated by God. And now he wasn't dry bones, but God had to do the same thing. He had to literally recreate him cell by cell in order to bring him back to life. Are you spiritually dead? I want you to know today that you must not, and I must not, ever underestimate what God can do. I remember the story about a family who had a cat that was run over by a car. The mother quickly disposed of the remains because they had a four-year-old son, Billy, who eventually found out about it. After several days, Billy finally asked about the cat, said, where's the cat? The mother said, well... The cat died. And his mother explained, trying to console him, but it's all right. He's up in heaven with God. The boy thought for a moment, then he asked, what on earth would God want with a dead cat? (laughs) He didn't get it. He didn't understand the concept of resurrection and the power of resurrection, although... I'm not hopeful for cats, by the way. Is our nation spiritually dead? I think that's a fair question. Is our nation spiritually dead? Or maybe you could say it this way, is God's church in this world spiritually dead because we don't seem to be making the impact that we ought to be making? We don't don't seem to be standing forward even in our own nation and making the, the shocking impact, and I say shocking, you understand, we, we, by the grace of God, not anything of ourselves, because the Spirit of the living God lives within us, we are the most powerful beings in this world. Because real power doesn't come from money, it doesn't come from business, it does not come from politics, it comes from the Spirit of the living God. And you and I are powerful but we're living as though, and I say we, I don't know all Christians, but I, my sense is in this country that we're living in a powerless mode, like we're in a coma too much of the time. And that has happened because we've been shamed into silence. Because we don't want to be called names. We don't want to be excluding people. We don't want to be known as judgmental. And so we just keep quiet. There was a church like that in the Bible. It's in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. Jesus wrote them a letter. 
remember the letter to the seven churches? This is the church in Sardis. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. That's a hard assessment from Jesus. Because if Jesus says you're dead, you're dead. He goes on to say, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Obey it and repent. So I ask again, is our nation dead? Is God's church in our nation dead? Well, how do you know something is dead? I think that's fair. Well, let me give you just a couple of criteria, and you don't have to be a scientist or a doctor to know this, but dead doesn't grow. It doesn't produce and it doesn't overcome because it's dead. Number two, dead gets thrown into the fire. In terms of churches, we know this in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus is speaking in verse 19. He says this, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So as a church... We are known by our fruit. Our fruit indicates whether we are alive or dead. And if we have no fruit, we're dead. Third, death means separation. It means to be cut off from God and His blessings. And that's where we find the Israelites in the day of Ezekiel. They were dead because they did what they needed to do to die. And make no mistake about it, the Israelites are dead because of sin. They didn't get a disease. There was no pandemic. There was no virus. They didn't have bad luck. They didn't do what they could and they just weren't powerful enough or strong enough or good enough. They were dead because God had withdrawn his hand from them and he did that because they were so wicked. And I want to say, we can do this and do this and do this and have some brilliant strategy for dealing with coming back to life But there will be no strategy that is separate from repentance and coming back to God and being obedient to Him. That's what we see in this passage. He says, and so I love it. Go back to Revelation. I love this. Jesus says you're dead. And then after He says they're dead, He then gives them strategies. (laughs) I love that. He says you're dead. But here's what you can do to come back and be a live church again. He doesn't say it's over because you're dead and I'm done with you. He says you're dead and it may be too late pretty quick, but I'm going to give you another chance. Here's what he says. Wake up, verse 2. And so that's the first thing he tells them. He says, I want you to wake up. You're, you're dead in the sense of uh, you're in a self-induced coma. And there are churches today, I would say that, bless their hearts, they're in a self-induced coma. They're static, they're lethargic, they're sleepy, nothing was really going on. There's no evidence that the Spirit of God is moving in that congregation. God forgive us if we ever come to that point. That's why I've told you, just because we're having a pandemic doesn't give us an excuse to do nothing. God expects something from His people that we bear good fruit. Uh, being a church that is alive and living for Jesus requires more than a name on a marquee. It requires more than a building 
or, and it requires more than just regularly scheduled meetings. So Christ presents the church at Sardis with five clear imperatives. Essential for you and me in our church as well as their church. And the first was, wake up. That is, they should renounce their drowsiness. Or we should renounce our drowsiness. He says, wake up. By the way, did you notice that God doesn't say, look, I'm going to wake you up. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. He puts the imperatives on the church. He says, you're dead. It's your fault you're dead. And so now you have a choice. You had a choice to be dead because you did the things that caused to bring about death. Now you need to choose life. He says, wake up. You ever been in a, a, a dream state and you're on that brink and you're aware that you're dreaming? You think you hear a noise in the house, but you're asleep and you try desperately to wake yourself up and you can do it. If you're conscious enough to, uh, to be aware that you're asleep, you can bring yourself to consciousness. It's not easy. Well, church is the same way. Our spiritual life and our spiritual walk with God, maybe you're in a coma. Maybe you're asleep. God says, wake up. Choose to get up. If you've ever gone to see somebody in the hospital in a coma, don't you want to say that? Wake up. Wake up. My first experience with death in my life was my grandfather. I was four or five years old. We called him Sipe. Uh, I thought that meant grandfather. That's just what everybody called him as a barber. And uh, so I was at Sipe's funeral, my grandfather's funeral, and I'd never seen that before. He was a little kid. I remember the casket. It was black. And I'd not seen a casket before. And, and Sipe was in the casket just laying there in a suit. And so my parents tried to explain to me, I assume, what death was, but I struggled to, to understand that. And so what happened was with Sipe and with everybody else, he had been embalmed, and they put this makeup on him to make him look like he wasn't dead. Because what, they take all the blood out of you. When that happens, you don't have any color left. So they put the makeup on to make you look like you're alive, but you're not really alive. You're really dead. Well, that was the church in Sardis. He says, you have a reputation for being alive. You put on the makeup, but you dead. I remember my grandfather, I kept looking at his chest, and I've done this over the years, and I know you probably have too at a funeral. Sometimes the funeral does a bad job, but sometimes they, they do such a remarkable job on the deceased person, they look like they could just sit up and walk off. I find myself without even thinking of it, looking at their chest, thinking, are they taking a breath? Are they moving? Because they look like they're alive, but they're not. They just look that way on the outside. God forgive us as a church where all we do is fool the rest of the people into thinking we're alive when we're really dead. It doesn't do any good. God knows whether we're alive or dead. Dead. And so that's what we should do. First of all, renounce our drowsiness, wake up. Secondly, we should revive our dedication. That is, we should strengthen what remains. Apparently, even this dead church had something going on. We might not have a big budget or be the biggest church or, or et cetera, but every church, every church has something. And God says, you take that something, what remains, and you work on that. Number three, we should remember our doctrine. He says this in verse three. He says, remember what you have received and heard. You know the, the truth. They knew what to do. They knew the truth. 
They had just passed it away. Number four, we should renew our commitment. He says, hold fast or to obey. Again, there is, <laughs> there is no way around this. He says, remember what you have received and heard and do what? Obey it. There's no, you can't cut that out. In your life, my life, in this church, and in the church in the United States and throughout the world, if we don't obey, we're really just spinning our wheels. We're just wasting time. You, you can't work around that. You have to do that. And then number five, we should repent of our desertion. We should repent. Because he says repent. That means you need to change your mind and change your direction. You should obey me and stop doing the things that you're doing. For his people called by his name in the Old Testament in the time of Ezekiel, they were dry bones on the valley of that floor because they, were, they had stopped doing what God called them to do. They had been distracted or tempted with other gods and other things. God sent his prophets to warn them. They didn't listen to Jeremiah. They didn't want to hear it from God's prophets. And so God says, you need to repent. You need to stop behaving that way. They needed to go from death to life, from compromise to conviction, from forgetfulness to remembrance, from slothfulness to watchfulness, and from weakness to strength. Listen to me. I am tempted every week to do this as well. It's my temptation, and I suspect it may be yours as well, because I hear the accusations. So many in our country, particularly those in Hollywood and those in the media, those who are in front of the camera all the time, are constantly trying to shame us and make us look like the bad guy. And I told you a while ago, our response, whether we realize it or not, is to simply stay quiet. You and I have the Spirit of the living God in us. We've been redeemed by the blood of, of the Lamb. By the grace of God, not because of us, but because of Christ, we have the Spirit of the living God in our life. Stop apologizing for that. Stop apologizing. We are the most mighty force that has ever existed in this world, in this nation. It is because of the people of God and God working through his people that this nation became the great nation that has been anyway. Now, they don't believe that. They don't think that. But you and I know better. And if you have a history book, you can read it and find out better. It is because of God moving in, in the life of his people that this country ever became anything. Our founding fathers would tell you the same thing and often did. So don't let them shame you and me into compliance, into being anonymous in this country. God never calls anonymous people, ever. We need to come back to life. We need to come out of that coma and start being God's people. You know what I love to watch online? I, I don't know what you watch online. I, I, on YouTube, I've gotten aware, because you know, on Facebook, for example, or YouTube, you watch one video, and then there's a million videos that show up the next time about that. And so I watched a video about an animal being rescued. It was a pitiful animal. I, I don't remember what it was exactly, but it was, it was one of those rescue videos. And then next time, you know, there's 10,000 pet rescue videos on there. Everything from whales to, 
to rats. I mean, every, you name it, people have taken in squirrels and mice and everything else. But uh, most of the videos that I see are dogs and cats. And they'll, they'll have some pitiful dog uh, that, that is on the side of the road or is in a dump ground and he hadn't eaten for weeks and his bones are sticking out. And he has mange and so all, he's lost all of his hair and, and he's just struggling to breathe and he's minutes or hours away from dying. And they'll take that pitiful little dog and they'll love it. They'll rescue that dog. They'll give him food and medicine and they'll help him out. And I'm eager. I, I mean, I, I don't know why. I just eat that up. Now, maybe I feel that way. I don't know. God takes us and does the same thing. But so sometimes I'll forward to the end of the video because they drag it out, you know. I want to, <laughs> you know, I hate to watch the whole video and find out they die. You know, I, so I go to the end and I, I see the result after a few months of, of caring for the dog and loving the dog or the cat, how good they look. In fact, it's hard for me to recognize them. Sometimes I have to go back to the middle to make sure it's the same animal <laughs> because they look so much better. It's extraordinary. And I think our nation and our world spiritually may be that way. It's got the mange. It's looking bad. <laughs> and God has called you and I to, to intervene, to rescue. God desires to rescue this world. He desires to take it from what it is to what he designed it to be. And he's chosen you and I as his workers to facilitate that. So go out this week, listen for dry bones rattling, and expect God to do miracles in this world, in this town, in this church, and in your life. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this passage and these powerful words. We recognize you are the God of the impossible. Only you can take dry bones and bring them back to life. Only you. There's no government that can do that. There's no president or king or dictator or ruler that can do that. There's no communist party that can make that happen. There's no budget that will facilitate that. There's no cure or serum or vaccine that will make that happen. It is your hand alone that has the power to take what is dead and make it alive. And we are reminded that of that when we sing about the dry bones and we sing about our resurrected Savior. And because of Him and His resurrection, we have hope that you're going to do the same in our life. We recognize that in time, if Christ does not come back in our lifetime, we are going to be put under the ground. And over time, a few months, a few years, a few decades, or a few centuries, we, there will be nothing but dead, dry bones. But you have power over death. And we have hope through Christ. Thank you. Father, I ask and pray, or we ask and pray right now for forgiveness for those times that we have allowed this world to put us in a coma. We have allowed this world to paralyze us into remaining anonymous, quiet, subdued. We have bought the lies 
that we're causing trouble or that we're judging others. And certainly there are those out there that are doing that, Father, but we have allowed those accusations to stop us in our tracks. Remind us today that we have within us the Spirit of the living God. Your Holy Spirit through Christ living in us. Remind us that we've been called from death to life and that you've given us eternal life. Remind us that we are your ambassadors and we are here for a reason. And it's not just to get through the year or get through the day. It is more, so much more. It is to be a change agent in this world that you have created us to be powerful in Christ, to change lives. May we go and do that this week. Give us strength to do that this week, unapologetically. As you're praying right where you are, can I challenge you this morning to come to your God and say, God, forgive me for apologizing. Forgive me for being anonymous. Forgive me for being too quiet about my faith. You don't have to be obnoxious. That's not what I'm telling you to do. But I do challenge you to go to God right now and say, God, I will not apologize for being a believer in Christ. I will not apologize for that. And I will not be afraid. If people call me names, they call me names. If people want to accuse me, then let them accuse. But I will not be afraid. My God is with me. Will you make that commitment today? Maybe you have not surrendered your life to Christ and you know that you are dead, dry bones. And if you are apart from Christ, I'm telling you, you are dead. The Bible says you're dead in your sins. Let me tell you what can happen if you'll come to Christ today. He will create in you a new heart and you will live with hope and purpose in Him. He will guide you. He won't make your life easy but He will give you the power in the Holy Spirit to overcome whatever is in your life. I challenge you to come up and say, Pastor, I want to give my life to Christ today. Well, thanks for joining us today online for our worship service. We hope that you are ministered and encouraged to while you're with us. And we just want to remind you that you can connect with us online by going to fbcazel.org forward slash connect. We hope to see you again next week.